right, well, welcome back to Summer in the Psalms. This is our last week in this series, and so this is our last time, at least for this summer, uh, talking about the Psalms. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Psalm 103. As you're turning there, I'm going to go ahead and introduce what we're going to do this morning. Again, this is the last psalm that we'll cover, and Psalm 103 is, is one of my favorite psalms, and I probably said that the, the, couple, the few times that I've preached in the Psalms uh, this summer. And one of our intents with this series was to bring you some of our favorite Psalms. And so when John came up and when Peter came up, uh, I asked them, you know, pick whatever your favorite Psalm is and just share that with the congregation. And so each one of them had a different flair and a different flavor to it. And I hopefully, hopefully you caught that as a, as a different guys were, uh, were preaching. And I think this one is going to have, uh, you know, just a, a different message in and of itself. At least that's my intent. Um, this is um, this is a Psalm of David. It's probably one of the most upbeat, joyful, uplifting Psalms in all of all of the Psalter. And so we've seen several other Psalms where the psalmist was crying out to God, where he was bringing his complaints before God, where he was giving and offering a prayer to God. And um, and that was rightly so. But what's happening here is David is simply praising God. He's, he's not crying out for anything. Um, he's not petitioning God for anything. All he's doing is simply offering praise to God. And so you should notice that um, the psalmist is rejoicing, simply rejoicing in the Lord, remembering all that God has done for him. This psalm is actually paired with the one that comes after it, Psalm 104. They go together. They go together principally because they use many of the same phrases. Um, you'll see this phrase uh, at least four times in Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And that is replicated in Psalm 104. And these are the only two psalms that will see that, that beautiful phrase of, 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 you know, of you conjuring up from inside of you to bless the Lord. And David does that on purpose. And so let's go ahead and open up and read Psalm 103 together. There, there are quite a few verses here, but we're going to go ahead and, and, and try and get through it this morning. So let's read together. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that's within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we're dust. As for man, his days are like grass, he flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it. And it is gone and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him 
and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you as angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We especially thank you for for the Psalter, all of the Psalms that we've covered this summer and ones that we will on our own uh, frequent uh, as we uh, devote ourselves to meeting with you and communing with you. And God, we pray that uh, we would hear your voice through David this morning and what he's saying um, about you in this psalm. God, may the words jump off the page and come into our own soul and bring us to a point where we too would cry out, bless the Lord, O my soul. God, we pray that we would hear and see your gospel here and that it would change us so that we would be more like Jesus. And we pray that in his great name. And everyone said, amen. What I hope that that we would gather from Psalm 103 is this psalm is going to show us, help us see the gospel. And um, more than that, David teaches us to preach the gospel to ourselves. That's what I would hope to convey to you this morning. That phrase, preaching the gospel to yourself, may be familiar to you, maybe not. If not, I'm going to um, help you understand exactly what that means, or at least introduce it to you in, in, uh, as to what your appetite. But if you've been here with us at the transit for any length of time, you know that there really isn't a sermon that goes by that we don't, in, in some way, talk about the gospel. And that's on purpose, firstly, because the gospel is the message, is the good news of a God that died for us in our place for our sin. It's the it's the message that brings us into relationship with God. And there is no other. But more than that, it's the message that has the power to change us to be more like Jesus. That is the gospel. And so if I were to ask you, what is the message of the gospel? Of Obviously, I've already said it, but, you know, sometimes we can um, we know it. But, but how do you articulate it? And there, there's several places in Scripture that specifically just, you know, Paul, for example, in the Gospels. So when we hear it. Uh, this is the gospel. OK, Jesus in my place. Jesus died in my place for my sin. You might say something like that. I'm going to give you really seven words that helps you convey the gospel. And it's simply this. What's the gospel? Christ died for our sins and was raised. If I were teaching this to a group of kids, then I would do some hand motions to it. I would tell them, make a fist and with every every finger on your hand, simply say a word. Christ died for our sins. I didn't do that quite right, but y'all get get the point right. Okay. And then to to show the resurrection, I say, and he was raised. I lift my hand up to the to the sky. Okay, that, that's kind of silly, right? But but it helps you remember. Everybody do that with me. Christ died for our sins and he was raised. That really is the gospel. The issue for most of us is not just knowing those words and saying them, but how do I apply that to my life? A lot of times the word gospel, even saying how do you apply the gospel to your life becomes a trite phrase that all of us use, but um, How do I make it real and specific so that it connects to all of my life? And that's where Psalm 103 comes in. Uh, 
Firstly, you won't find a single line in this psalm directly uh, directed to God. David is speaking to himself. He says, bless the Lord, O my soul. He's beckoning himself to to recognize all that God has done for him. And he's encouraging himself to respond based upon what he already knows to be true. David is talking to himself. More importantly, he's preaching to himself. He's preaching the gospel to himself. He's calling himself to worship. He says in verse one, bless the Lord, O my soul. And throughout this entire psalm, he's going to address himself up to the very end in verse 20, where I think he becomes overwhelmed with all the praise that's in him, such that he he calls out to all creation and the angels to join him in this praise of the one who the only one that can change him. And so David is doing exactly in this psalm what I think all of us have to do to invoke change. That is preaching the gospel to ourselves. So when life is happening all around you and you're trying to figure out your way, but you're also trying to trying to figure out how do I insert my faith? How do I live out my faith in the midst of all this craziness that's going on around me? David suggests to us that we preach the gospel to ourselves. So what is preaching the gospel to yourself? I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you right up front, because if you don't hear anything else, I want you to get this. This, what I'm about to say, is worth the price of admission to come into the transit today. What you pay to get here? Nothing. All right. So it's worth the price of admission, but it's golden. All right. Preaching the gospel yourself. It's reminding yourself of the price that God paid to purchase purchase your forgiveness. Have you ever thought about that? What it took God to pay for your forgiveness what it took him to deliver you from sin and from death and from the effects of the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden. Preaching the gospel to yourself is declaring to your own soul the greatness of God's grace and compassion and mercy. It's remembering how far you've fallen and what Christ has done to lift you up. Preaching the gospel to yourself is filling your mind and your heart to remember God's goodness. It's remembering God's love and his tender mercies that are revealed in Jesus Christ and that will lift you up out of any depression in your life. That's what preaching the gospel to yourself is. More than that, preaching the gospel to yourself is encouraging yourself to remember, as David says in verse eight, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Preaching the gospel to yourself is proclaiming to your heart, your own heart, the great loving kindness of God toward Those that fear him. It's telling yourself how foolish it is for you to trust in any other God. It's it's foolish for you to put any other idol above your worship of God. It's foolish for you to hope in anything else but the Lord himself. Preaching the gospel to yourself is reminding yourself that you can't earn redemption on your own merit. And this is key here. Because we're all performers. We learned this from the very time that we're little kids, that if I do this and if I do it right, I'm going to get rewarded. Parents, we don't mean to teach this to our kids. We we often do. Do this right, Johnny, and you'll get something for for doing it right. And we and we grow up believing that we have to perform to to earn favor. And preaching the gospel to ourselves reminds us there's nothing that we can do to earn God's favor. It's merited by simply trusting in Jesus. Preaching the gospel to yourself is reminding yourself that all of your own righteousness is like a hamper full of filthy rags. Actually, Isaiah says it's like a pile of poop. That's what he says. Isaiah 64, 6. Check it out. It's folly to trust your own works, that we have to look to Christ alone and remember that he alone is our salvation. 
And so if you don't hear anything else I say today, remember what that is, preaching the gospel to yourself. And this is what David does in this psalm. He's preaching the gospel to himself. And so what I want to do is hone in on a few verses. This is a lot of verses, so we can't we can't cover them all. We're going to mostly be uh, unpacking uh, verse one through uh, four or five and then sprinkling in a few others as we go. But what David does is starting in verse two is and really all the way through the rest of this psalm, he starts preaching the gospel to himself. And the way that he titles it, entitles it, he calls it uh, not forgetting the benefits of God, not forgetting God's benefits. Verse two, he says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. What do we do when we forget not? That means we remember. We remember what God has done for us. And David will sprinkle that all the way through uh, the rest of this psalm. And there's three, three particular areas in all this psalm that I think the, the redemptive benefits uh, of God are displayed by David. Three categories. The first is pardon. In other words, God forgives us from the guilt of our sin. The second is purification. God cleanses us from the effects of sin. And thirdly, pity. And that's an interesting word to use. And I'll explain it when I get to it. But God shows compassion and mercy toward us in spite of our sin, in spite of our fallenness and our weakness. So let's let's look at this first category um, that God pardons us. He forgives us. Verse three says, who forgives all your iniquity and who heals all your diseases. I think the truth of God's forgiveness is that the very heartbeat of the gospel is this idea of forgiveness. And it's appropriate that David starts here. He has to start here. It's significant and it's appropriate that the psalmist puts the matter of forgiveness first in his list of benefits, because without the idea of forgiveness of sin, it's impossible to enjoy to enjoy any of the other benefits that David lists here. And again, it's important for us to remember we can't earn God's we can't earn our forgiveness by making ourselves fit for heaven. Tim Keller often has this. Pastor Tim Keller has this phrase. Um, you can't make God love you more by doing something. But there's also no sin that will make God love you less. If you trust in Jesus, then he gives you the forgiveness of sin. He gives you justification. He gives you righteousness based upon your simple trust. We don't earn forgiveness by making ourselves fit for heaven. Rather, God forgives us and then makes us fit for eternity. And that's why it's fit that we would look at this idea of forgiveness first. And so God removes our sins as far as the east is from the west. That's verse 12. I love that phrase. Think about think about the infinity between those two directions. That's what he's talking about. But then he doesn't stop there. He conforms us to the image of his son. And this order is important. Divine forgiveness is a pure act of grace. We're reminded here that God's sovereignty is in place here, that we come to faith because God chooses us. He chases us. He forgives us before we do anything. That would earn his forgiveness other than trusting in Jesus. Second thing I think it's important to remember in this idea of pardon is that the psalmist is speaking in the present tense. And so he said, God forgives all your iniquities. There's a present tense, continuous action going on here. 
In other words, forgiveness is a benefit of every believer and it's a current possession. You have it right now. You don't have to work for it. It's not something that you have to wait for when you when you've performed all these things for God. It's available to you right now. Check out a few of uh, a few scriptures that uh, that corroborates this. John three eighteen says, whoever believes in him, whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned. Romans eight one very familiar verse. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter five, verse one. But we have been justified by faith and therefore we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the commonality of all these verses is that they have is that they speak of complete forgiveness that's immediate and here for me right now. Forgiveness is our present possession and forgiveness is ongoing for us. First John one nine. I don't have this on the screen, but first John one nine. If we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us and purify us. He not only forgives us, we'll look at this in a, in a second, but he cleanses us from all those things that defile us and get in the way of our relationship to God. The third thing I would encourage us to do here is notice how many verses throughout this psalm really talk about forgiveness. Check these out. Verse 8, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Verse 10, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our Iniquities. Isn't it just like us to do? I mean, to, I mean, you hit me, I'm going to hit you back. It's like tit for tat. We live our lives in this tit for tat kind of arrangement. I'll love you if you love me, too. OK, but the psalmist is saying God isn't like that. He doesn't deal. He doesn't give us what we deserve. In fact, he gives us what we don't deserve. He gives us his grace. Verse 11, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. I love the imagery of this verse because it's we don't know how high the heavens are. I mean, who, who knows? Has, every, any, has any of us been there? There's no astronaut that's ever been there. There's no mechanical device that we can um, aim up into the heavens and see beyond what God has created. And so the imagery here is uh, is God loves us infinitely more than we can even fathom. Um, there's a, an account in Genesis 11 where the people, the, 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 this new formed community of Israel, they weren't even that yet. They were building a tower. OK, it's actually one of the saddest days in all the Bible. They were building a tower because they were trying to get up to heaven. It was in the mind and the heart of man that they were going to to, to reach God by their own skill, by their own merit. And so the scripture says God came down from heaven. Of course, he confounded their languages and scattered people all across the the face of the earth to 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 keep them from doing that harsh thing that they that was in their heart to do. And so he reminds us here, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is God's steadfast love. Paul said, I was up in the third heaven. There are categories of heaven beyond what we can see. There's the sky and then there's that that area where the stars are. And then there's a heaven way up that Paul has seen. And we don't know who else has seen it. Maybe the angels, the angelic beings, but we've never seen it. Verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressors from us. One of my favorite verses in all the Bible. And the reason why is because it gives us this is it's this figure of speech to express the idea that our sins never come back to haunt us. They never come back to accuse us. They never come back to taint us with guilt. You know how sometimes. Um, 
I mean, even after something is over, I mean, you just can't get away from it. You just feel the guilt of what you've done or somebody keeps bringing it back up even years be after it's, it's sort of been done with. This is saying God won't do that to us. He's not going to haunt us because of our sins. It, and, and God is omnipotent. So it doesn't say he forgets our sin. He can't forget. He chooses to not remember. In fact, he chooses to place our sins as far as the east is from the west. And this is the deal. You can go around the earth. You can go in an easterly or westerly direction and do that perpetually and never stop. Can't you? So he's saying there's this infinite distance that our that our sins are placed from us. And that's a beautiful thing. And then we get to to verse 17, still on this idea of of forgiveness. The psalm is speaking of forgiveness. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. The other versions of the Bible use use a different uh, word for this. uh, This phrase here, steadfast love. The King James and New King James version uses the, the word mercy. The New American Standard uses the word loving kindness. And, and what you're reading here is the English Standard Version, steadfast love. This is the beautiful Hebrew word hesed. And hesed includes all of these ideas of mercy and of loving kindness. But it's equivalent to our word grace. And grace is the word that we use to convey Getting what we don't deserve. God favoring us when we just absolutely have botched it and don't deserve him to be nice or kind or loving to us at all. And it says God does this for us and he does it from everlasting to everlasting for those who fear him. And so think about this. God gives us beauty and kindness and favor and faithfulness and mercy and he pities us. And everything else that you could associate with that word called grace. And that's I mean, that's just a a, a lovely thing if you think about it, because we don't deserve that. And so because we're sinners, preaching to ourselves has to start, as David does in this psalm, with with looking at God's forgiveness, his mercy, his forbearance, his pardon for our sins. In other words, really. Because I've named so many verses here, we could say that most of this psalm is talking about God's forgiveness for us. He's pardoning us when we don't deserve it. And that is one of the benefits that we gain from God. And So David is preaching to himself in regards to that. And so how do we preach to ourselves? We remember the benefits of God's great pardon for our, for our sins. That's the first thing. The second category that David writes about in this psalm is purification. All right. I've got an alliteration going on there. So hang with me. These P words. Uh, But he's talking about cleansing of of God, cleansing, cleansing us from the effects of sin. Looking at verse three again, he says here, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who heals all your diseases. You know, I've prayed this prayer a lot of times. I prayed a prayer using those words for someone to be healed. Okay, and you have too. But I think we've already covered part of verse three. And um, in context, this isn't really talking about a physical healing. It's talking about a healing that's far more significant for all of us. It's talking about a a spiritual malady. David here has in mind more of a spiritual kind of healing. It's not that God can't heal us and that it's heresy to ask to, to say that. God heals all our diseases. But specifically here in Psalm 103, 
David is talking about not physical healing, like I have something in my body that needs God's touch. He's talking about something that's far more important, and that's your spiritual healing. Someone once said that sin itself is a kind of spiritual disease. These are the words of theologian John Gill. He's a a reformed British um, old guy theologian. He's dead now. But he has some great words to say about this idea of sin being a spiritual disease. Listen to these words. Sin is a natural, hereditary, epidemical, nauseous and mortal disease. That sounds nasty. And I don't think I, I don't think I want that. But I think we all have it. And there are many spiritual diseases, a complication of them in men. They are all byproducts of sin, which God can only cure. And he heals them by his word, by means of his gospel, preaching peace, pardon and righteousness by Christ, by the blood, wounds and stripes of his son, Jesus, by the application of pardoning grace and mercy for healing diseases and forgiving iniquities are practically one and the same thing. And so what John Gill is saying here is, is that. This idea of cleansing us from our sin is it's the work of Jesus that makes this kind of healing possible. It's Jesus that does this. He does it by the blood of his cross. Isaiah rightly said in Isaiah 53, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. OK, we, we've prayed. We've used this scripture verse to talk about physical healing as well. But Isaiah rightly saw Jesus as the one that heals us. Jesus can heal us from a, a, a physical malady, something that's wrong with our body that may end in death. But he's saying more importantly that Jesus is the one who will come and who will heal us spiritually. That thing that will cause us to go to hell, that thing that will cause us to be separated from eternity with God. Isaiah rightly saw that Jesus is the one that delivers us from sin and not just from sin itself, but from the guilt and penalty of it and also its power. Jesus heals us from all those things. This same kind of healing is what Jeremiah saw in his famous Jeremiah chapter 17. He wrote, heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me and I shall be saved for you are my praise. And so Jeremiah is the weeping prophet and he's preaching to the the nation of Israel saying, hey, obey God. Do what he's saying, because if you don't, he's going to send you into exile. And so he's pleading with them pleading with them to get their lives right. He saw their gross sins and they never got it right. And so in these very words, he's praying and pleading for Judah's deliverance. This is the same chapter where uh, where Jeremiah says our hearts are deceitfully wicked. Okay, and so what Jeremiah is is, is rightly doing is he's he's helping us understand that the worst thing that can happen to us is not a sore or cancer in our body, the worst thing that can happen to us is to have a spiritual plight that leads us to a spiritual death, separation from God. And he's crying out for mercy from God for his people. And we and David is doing that same thing in this in this psalm. He says, thank you, Lord, that you have purified me. You've cleansed me from my sin. You've healed me. The ultimate healing is a spiritual healing. And so David preached to himself by reminding himself of his healing, of his complete of his complete purification from sin. And I think the appropriate picture here that David had was really the atonement. And so uh, in the atonement, uh, 
the book of Leviticus, you had a, a priest who was uh, who was commissioned to go and atone for the sins of the people on a special day. One day of the year, he could do this. He put on a special garment. He would offer a bull and sacrifice for his own sins. And then he would take two goats and he would cast lots, basically throwing craps for those for those goats. And the one that came up, um, I don't know exactly how he did it, but one was uh, a scapegoat and would be allowed to be set free. And he placed his hands on that goat and he would confess all the sins of the people on that goat. And they would escort that goat outside of the city and he would run free. What happened to the other goat? That goat was slaughtered. He was sacrificed. His blood was um, was captured in some kind of a uh, a device and the priest would use the blood of that sacrificed goat to go into the Holy of Holies and he would present it before God. and He would sprinkle it on the mercy seat, asking, petitioning God to forgive and cleanse the sins of the people. And so the picture that David is warning us to get here is a picture of atonement, that Jesus is the one that dies in our place. Jesus is the one that was sacrificed. His blood is spilt on the cross. And guess who we are? We're the scapegoat. We get to go free. I mean, isn't that a reason to praise God? And so David preaches to himself by remembering, firstly, the benefits of his pardon. God has forgiven us from the guilt of our sin. And then secondly, he remembers the benefit of purification, that we've been cleansed, that we've been healed from the effects of our sin. And finally, he remembers God's pity toward him. The pity, pity simply meaning God's compassion and mercy uh, that God gives us in spite of our fallenness. Pity is an interesting word to use here. And y'all are probably saying, where in the world did, did Jeff get this word pity? Um, if you look at the King James, uh, not that many of you are looking at the King James Version, but uh, I'm getting this from verse 13. Verse 13 says, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. The King James Version says, as a father pitieth. His children. And so uh, he's saying as a father shows compassion, you know, it's compassion, showing the love that the kids, the kids actually don't, don't deserve, but you're going to give it to him anyway. That's where this this P word comes from. And so David, the psalmist, speaks of God's tenderhearted compassion to his people. He reminds himself of the Lord's tender and compassionate heart to all who call upon him. And I think what he wants us to see here is this fatherly picture uh, of God loving us and showing compassion to us and being merciful to us. You know, we don't know because Scripture doesn't tell us exactly what kind of relationship David had with his dad. We know that he was the runt of the litter of several older brothers. We know that when uh, the prophet Samuel came looking for the one that he would anoint uh, as king after Saul and looked among David's uh, brothers he looked at all the strong ones and the, the father was even surprised when Samuel picked out David. That doesn't tell us much about the relationship they, they had. But we know from David's life what's revealed to us in Scripture that David had a very close relationship with God. Psalm, one, um, Psalm 23 tells us that David knew God as a shepherd, one who cared for his his very soul, who tended to his needs that he could come to with any problem and his shepherd would be there. And we knew that David, from the writings that he had, even in the Psalms, knew that, that God was a merciful, uh, forgiving God toward him. And so we can say that in many ways, David knew about the, the God that showed him compassion and mercy when he was most undeserving. 
What I want to do is actually back up because there's a few other places in this psalm that shows us God's pity, his compassion and mercy toward us, even though we sin. Verse four, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Now, verse four, continue this this theme of of God's redemption. It talks about God's forgiveness, his merciful saving of our lives from destruction. But then he 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 keeps on going in verse five. He says this, who satisfies you with good so that your your youth is renewed like an eagle. He speaks of God as a provider here. I like these words. He satisfies you with good. And I think what that means is, you know, God is not this this cosmic killjoy who uh, who's trying to squelch all the fun that you could have in life. Um, Larissa and I were talking in the kitchen this week and uh, we were trying to talk. Um, Jonathan was playing the violin and, live, you know, we live in a townhouse. So there's like 10 feet between the kitchen and the, and the living room. And uh, Jonathan's playing the violin. He's playing. He's he's doing his thing. That, I mean, same thing you all see him doing here. He only except he does it like all the time. All right. And then David gets on the piano. David likes to play the piano and he's getting better at it. And unfortunately for me. Um, the way I reacted, David is not they're not playing together. They're playing like totally different, totally different like pieces. Like it's like clashing, at least for me. And I, I like I wasn't a good father at this moment. All right. So I'm confessing. I was like, stop it. You're driving me nuts. I can't even hear myself talk. I said, this is the deal. One of you can play. But if you're not going to play together, don't play at all. And unfortunately, it just squelched everything. And they probably had a, you know, they probably were mad at me at that point. And, and I was wrong to do that. I was doing what, what God did not do. I was doing what David said God did not do. In fact, my wife reminded me that I was doing that. It's like, well, I mean, it's, they're not sinning. They're, they're not are they really bothering you. I said, well, it's just hurting my ears. It's like, well, it's, they're having fun. They're, they're actually getting some enjoyment out of what they're doing. And not only that, you know, we, we want them to be musical people. And so God isn't like I was to my kids. He's not this guy that wants to squelch every every ounce of fun that you have. He's not like that. God delights in our pleasure. He wants us to find. In fact, he wants us to find pleasure in him and to live out of that pleasure. He delights to satisfy us with good things. I like what Psalm 23 that Peter preached several weeks ago says. He leads us in green pastures and beside still waters and he prepares a table for us in the presence of our enemies. Psalm 23. And then I preached weeks ago, Psalm 107, verse nine. He satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul. He fills with good things again and again. Scripture stresses God's goodness as our provider. Going on, I think David also underscores the idea of God's patience and his long suffering. God is a God that shows compassion and 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 long suffering toward us when we don't deserve it. Verse nine says he will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. We don't use that word chide in, in our culture. It simply means uh, reprimand. And this is the deal. This, this is what God does. He, he reprimands us. He chastises us. He corrects us like any good father would do for a child that that he loves. Right. When that child does something wrong. Hebrews 12 said uh, a father disciplines his child, okay, because he loves him. And God will do that. But God doesn't chide us. He doesn't reprimand us for his own sake or for his own pleasure. He's doing it out of his love for us. 
He's doing it for our good. It's like a, a family that's going down the street. We see this all the time here in Kingstown, all these beautiful sidewalks. Families running or walking and just taking strolls. It's like the, the, the little kid that's you know, on a trike or a bicycle running out ahead. And, the, you know, the rule for the family is, all right, uh, you know, young Susie, don't go into the street until we get up to the curb with you. OK, we uh, teaching Zoe how to ride a bike. That's what we should do. Zoe, stop at the curb. Wait till we get there. Then you can go across after we make sure there's no, no cars coming. And the kid will go. You know, what does a kid do? A kid is going to do what a kid does. Right. They're going to go straight across the road. OK, so what's a parent going to do? They're probably going to get angry. They're probably going to have some words for the kid. They're going to remind them of the rules. OK, they, they might even, you know, they might even chide, reprimand the kid, but they're doing it for the kid's own good. And this is the process that God does with us. He doesn't he, he doesn't do it uh, out of spite. He does it because we need it. I love what Micah seven uh, has to say in the spirit of this psalm. Who is a God like you? Partnering iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He again will have compassion on us. He'll tread our iniquities underfoot. You'll cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. This really encapsulates much of what David wrote in Psalm 103 right here in these two verses. And so does God, uh, God does all this with tender fatherly compassion. He's a tender fatherly uh, compassionate God toward us. He pities us. And then he continues in verse 14 and 16 that he knows our frame. He remembers that we're dust. He says, as a man, as for man, his days are like grass. He, he flourishes like a flower of the field for the wind passes over it and it's gone and its place knows it no more. And so and I don't know my I don't know my flowers too well, but whatever that flower is that you can just pick up out of the ground, you know, blow it a little bit and just like scatters all around. The place. What's that flower called? What's it called? Dandelion. I knew I knew it. I should have said it. I should have just took the should have just believed it in faith. <laughs> just like a dandelion. You know, those crazy little flowers. David, David knew that his life was like my life is just so it's so fleeting. It's like this little flower. that I just got to blow on it and it's gone. We're fail. We're, we're, we're frail and we're fallen. He says our lives are temporary and they're absolutely fragile. And this is the neat thing. He says that God remembers that. God knows that about us, and it's why he deals with us so compassionately. And so David is preaching this. He's preaching this to himself. He's reminding himself of all these great things about the God that he serves. And it's encouraging him. It's changing his his mind about the disposition of whatever he's going through at that time. And I I think it's changing him. It's changing his outlook on life and hopefully it's changing his heart. I think what we should get out of this is if we keep this in mind and remember all these benefits, they come simply by God's grace. He favors us. He gives us what we don't deserve. He does it for us in spite of our sinfulness. And this should give us more reason to praise God. And so I'll conclude with this. This is what preaching the Gospels is, is all about. We remember God's benefits. That's, that's all David's doing here. He's thinking about all the things that God has done for him, toward him, and he's meditating on it and letting it lift him up from whatever tough place he's in or he's letting it just encourage him to live life, not to himself, but to the God that does all this for him. 
I haven't said this, but this is, this is good to remember as we're closing the psalmist. I mean, why should we remember God's benefits? I mean, why? He doesn't tell us why, but this is, this is the why. Because we forget. And, and David here is talking to his own soul because he knew that his soul would forget. We're forgetful people. We remember one day and the next day, everything that we've experienced and that we've known is as far, you know, it's just behind us. It's gone. It's fleeting. And so David encourages us. He encourages us to encourage our own soul. Remember the benefits of God. And so remembering God's benefits takes our eyes off of ourselves and off our own problems. It stirs us to worship. God's benefits remind us that if we're seeking satisfaction anywhere else, then you'll eventually be disappointed because anything that you put above your worship or seeking satisfaction in God is going to disappoint you. It really is. More importantly, David encourages us that as we find ourselves forgetting God's benefits and and failing to preach to ourselves, we have the opportunity to simply repent and ask God to renew our heart. And so as we preach the gospel to ourselves, we embrace the promises of mercy and of God's loving kindness that we find in this psalm. And we know that they're for us, not just for people out there, but they're for us. They're for those who've trusted not in your own goodness, but in Jesus goodness for you. It's for those that fear the Lord, for those that keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. And so let's remember his benefits. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the reminder from David of God's goodness, of how he extends both pardon and purification and his pity toward us, even when we're not deserving. Actually, we should say when we're most undeserving, God favors us. And so teach us to to remember his benefits. Teach us more importantly to preach the gospel to ourselves. God, may the things that God does for us in spite of ourselves be good news for us. God, may it be good news for us that, that God has forgiven us of our sin. That he's done this first and then based upon our trust in Jesus, he extends to us all these other benefits and makes them available to us. Thank you for the benefit that you cleanse us, that you heal us from our iniquities, that you cause our sins to be as far as the east is from the west. Thank you for that picture. And we thank you, Lord God, that that you are a father, a compassionate, tenderhearted, loving father that loves us despite our fallenness. God, we need these words from David to remind us, to encourage us, to lift us up. And we thank you for them. And it's in Jesus' great name that we pray.